Hey folks, QCon New York is returning to Brooklyn this June 13 to 15. Learn from over 80 senior software leaders at early adopter companies as they share their firsthand experiences implementing emerging trends and best practices. From practical techniques to pitfalls to avoid, you'll gain valuable insights to help you make better decisions and ensure you adopt the right organizational patterns and practices. Whether you're a senior software developer, architect, or team lead, QCon New York features over 75 technical talks across 15 tracks, covering MLOps, software architectures, resilient security, staff plus engineering, and more to help you level up on what's next. Learn more at QConNewYork.com. We hope to see you there. Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Engineering Culture Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Jesse McGuinness from Shopify. Jesse, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Now, we met when you gave a talk at QCon San Francisco last year on building high trust and high performing teams at Shopify in a remote world. Before we get into that, who's Jesse? Great question. I don't know. Who is Jesse? I mean, there's so much to that question, but the usual answer, I work at Shopify. I'm a senior lead. I've been here for approaching six and a half years, which is wild to think about. I love helping teams and people figure out how they can be the best versions of themselves. It's been a joy chasing that the last couple of years. Before that, much more focused on building products, getting into code much more, waxing those sets of skills. I'll go back there at some point in the next some number of years and continue that pendulum. But right now it really is about helping people figure out how to do the best version of the work. And yeah, I'm in very balmy Southern Ontario right now where we have about a foot of snow outside and a wind chill of minus 30. It's great. And I'm sitting in a summery autarky in bottom of the North Island, New Zealand. So <laughs> sounds horrible. <laughs> Isn't technology wonderful that we can be together and I don't have to be in a foot of snow? Yeah. <laughs> so what does trust look like in a remote world? I do think in many ways, it's not any different than what it is like in person. Can you have candid conversations? Are people willing to show up? Can people bring their authentic selves without having to be guarded or heavily guarded? Will they challenge their peers, their leaders? I think it's a lot of that. And then in remote, you just have to put a lot more work into creating space to let that build and develop. That might come naturally when you sit beside someone or get to have lunch with them every day or bump into them in the hallway, because none of those opportunities exist automatically when you're remote. What does that deliberate look like? Part of it is being willing to set aside space for creating that initial social connection, creating that really, to some extent, almost surface level trust, the small talk, the opportunity to play a casual game together. And it can feel really weird to say, here is our regimented 45 minutes to have fun together. But you kind of just have to get past that because if you don't set it up, I mean, you might get really lucky and have a team that's very outgoing and hungry for it and will do it of their own volition. But my experience has been that there's not a ton of those humans because they'll also feel the same trepidation that you might be facing in creating fun time, except for they're not in a position of authority. And it's like, well, am I allowed to go like book a thing on everyone's calendars? So it's creating space to let people be human together, to socialize, have that on some recurring cadence and rotate through different kinds of lightweight activities to help break the ice and still create opportunity 
to do like surface communication, conversation, and have that first initial introduction. You can go deeper than that. And I think you should. But I will also say, I think even having time for like, quote unquote, fun is more than what a lot of people do because they feel like it's work. We're here to do a job. I'm not supposed to set up time to socialize with my coworkers or my team. And so even if you just stop at creating space for fun, you've already done better than a lot of people that I've seen. Where I think magic happens though, is when you go deeper and you create very intentionally set up spaces where humans can kind of reveal a little bit more about who they are behind the curtain, show their full selves. And this is something that I think even in office, a lot of teams didn't do. Again, it might've happened naturally if you had board games in the office or drinks around and people could hang out together, or you went out together for a social activity, or you'd been working with someone for a really long time and it just naturally built up that really deep trust. But a lot of teams in office or in person didn't set up dedicated space to expedite deep trust building and in remote. I think it's even more important because you have so many less natural opportunities. And so if you've established a little bit of that, like surface trust building, help break the ice, help us know who we all are and can feel comfortable having a conversation with each other, then you can start layering in deeper conversations. And there's a lot of different prompts you can use. The New York Times questions to fall in love is my favorite kind of default one because it has a nice progression of what's your favorite superpower up to things like what's the relationship with your mother? and everything in between, those kinds of questions allow you to, to some extent expose more about who you are to your peers. In many cases, when I've run it, I've seen people not realize things that they have in common with each other that they can then take away for their own one-on-one. And again, digital environments, people should have one-on-ones that aren't manager report related. Like you can have a coffee chat with a friend, you should. But now that you've had this space where you expose more of who you are, have these conversations open up, that gives fodder for one-on-ones, that helps teams feel heard. I think it makes it easier for people to feel comfortable being honest about how they're doing or how their day is going. Once you've talked about the relationship with your parents or your beliefs about death or some of the scariest moments of your life with people, a lot of other stuff is easy as well, right? That's like the raw stuff about you as a human. After you've been willing to open up, had the space to open up, had moments to have these kinds of conversations multiple times, a lot of other conversations are in many regards trivial emotionally at the very least. So then it's really just about the work at hand. I think intentionality and purpose built spaces can be magic for a lot of different things. And trust is one of those. What does a great team look like? I think it depends on the type of work you're doing. But I do think as a default, any team that I would want to be a part of Mm -hmm. is one that people have fun, right? I really do think work isn't always rainbow and sunshines and joyful but I think it should have lots of moments of fun and engagement and interest. And so you need to know the people that you're working with. Hopefully you have a level of trust with them where you can be honest and authentic and unguarded about how you're feeling, what you care about, what you're passionate about. You can bring your full self. You don't have to put a whole bunch of energy into being really careful with what you say or how you present yourself or how you challenge or how you shy away. Yeah, you have fun and fun, not just in the, again, the service level. Like, I think you should have some of those like fun game things, but like working together itself is fun. And I do deeply believe when you have capable people that know the fundamental skills or are 
interested in learning how to get good at those skills and have the opportunity to do so. If you have people that you have fun with, with the work that you're doing and you trust, like that team will get very good, very fast. And maybe fold in some like reflection and introspection moments so that the team can identify where it's not as good as it needs to be or where the rough spots are or where there's opportunity to improve. And you kind of created this environment, this pot that's just going to like bubble over into a fantastic team. And how, from a team leader perspective, do we set up these teams to be successful? There's a lot of different things that you pull into. I'm trying to go like, which one is my favorite pull in here? But like, well, I'll go with is how do you set this up? There's a few core ingredients that have to be established to get to one of these kinds of high-performing teams. I think everyone needs to know what their purpose is. You need to know where you're going. You need to know why you're going there. You need to care about whatever that is or care about something, right? Maybe you're consulting and you don't actually care about the consulting project that you're attached to, but you care about like some interesting piece of technology you're exploring or the particular client or the team you're working with. You need to identify something that as a team, you can be excited and passionate and energized by and know that it is important or valuable or meaningful in some way, right? Know where you're going, know why that matters. That gives you direction, that gives you a sense of purpose that anchors a lot of other pieces. You should set up and create intentional spaces for the team to build trust. Again, play, create those avenues, be the strong facilitator if you don't have one already baked into the team to create surface level conversation and then well-facilitated safe spaces to have deep, honest, authentic conversation and build that real trust. And then depending on how you work, the type of work you do, the scale of the work, you're going to have different kinds of processes and rituals around it. But like, don't ignore process, right? Process is often, I think, tagged as a dirty word in our industry, but everything is process, everything. If you don't do something, there's still a process that exists, whether you want it to or not. It just might be something very chaotic and very not well suited to the work that is actually happening. And so take some time to think about Given the kind of work we're doing, given our team size, given the context of the work that we're doing and the space that we exist within, what systems or processes or nudges can I or should I set up to help this team be successful, right? That can be something like the full textbook answer of Scrum, which works for very specific kinds of projects. It can be something like Kanban. It can be something completely free form with a check-in every couple of weeks because you're doing deeply emergent and explorative work. That's very independent. You have to be willing to pick and set that up intentionally. And I think regardless of what process you have, you should have some system for retrospective and reflection. I really do think being self-aware and looking back at how things are going and having that avenue for the team to self-identify how it can get better is really critical to building a sustainable high-performing team. And that invites the team in to fix and improve itself, right? It's not your job as a lead to make a high-performing team. That's the team's job. Your job is to make sure that they have the tools they need, the space they need, the opportunity they need to get there. This is not a skill set that technologists are renowned for having. How do organizations help our technical leaders, the people who want to move into that space, build these skills? You mentioned for your own journey from coding and development into this leader position now, the team leading. What do you need to learn to do this? I believe organizations can accelerate it for you. 
you have to want it first and foremost, right? So that is actually maybe even the first step. Make sure this is a thing that you want to go spend time learning and getting good at. Because if it's not a thing you're excited about, it's all going to be a slog and you might get good at it, but you're not going to enjoy it, which means you're not going to be energized by it, which means you're not going to want to practice all of the things that feed into becoming really excellent. And so make sure it is a thing you want to explore. Where organizations can help, I think mentorship programs, peer groups, and then like I would say accelerators, right? So when I think about Shopify, the way we approach this, A, there is a pretty strong expectation that the people who are already in this craft of people leadership are mentoring and growing the people that are aspiring to be people leaders is an expectation that exists. We have a dev manager accelerator though, that focuses on what I would say are your management fundamentals, right? Self-reflection, how to run successful one-on-ones, how to give good feedback. And all of them have explicit space for practice with a facilitator present. And that maybe that's really what the actual answer here is, is that all of this is just stuff you have to practice. There isn't a cheat code. I mean, there's books you can read that speak to different strategies to take or different ways to show up as a facilitator. But like many of the things that we have in this industry, practice actually will get you there really fast. It's not going to be great the first few times. If you have someone nearby who can give you feedback on how that went, you'll get there faster. And if you don't have that someone and you're in a position where you have to do these things, I've done this in the past and I have seen other leaders do this where we shy away from admitting what we're not good at yet. Like the sense that we need to show up perfect or well-established or we know all of the answers and people see through that. And especially when you're new to something, just being upfront, like, hey, I'm going to try something this week that I've never done before with a really hearty, detailed, deep conversation. And I've read a blog post that talked about a way to run this. And I don't know how it's going to go, but this is what I'm trying to do. Being honest and authentic about your aims, about what you're worried about, opens the door, first of all, just by like being upfront, like, hey, I'm going to do this thing that I'm really unsure about, but I'm really excited about what it might do for us. You've already been honest and authentic. You've already like opened the door for other people to be honest and authentic. You've invited the room to give you feedback, or you should invite the room to give you feedback afterwards, which means you can learn. And then you've gotten some practice in. And then the second time you do it, you can still be honest about where you're at. Hopefully you will have gotten feedback that you can refine and iterate on and then ask again. And you're creating your own space to learn and grow with your team. None of that was specific or tactical. I think tactically, when you are facilitating or when you're showing up as a people leader or when you're working with other humans, what's really important to always remember is that you are dealing with other humans. We are all complicated. We are all nuanced. Communication is hard and things won't come across the way that you want, and you won't hear them the same way that they intended. And so give yourself grace, give yourself space, give yourself opportunity to learn and fumble and hit a whole bunch of walls, and just be ready to learn from it and carry on. Stepping back a bit, looking outside of where you are now, what's happening in our industry at the moment? It's chaotic. With the macroeconomic environment and companies, I think, getting wary about longer term prospects around revenues and all of that, as they should, they're doing very heavy introspection. To me, I see some trends emerging of people getting very critical about, do we have people working on the most important things versus stuff that maybe isn't as critical or core to our business? I have seen some trends around, are people, I hate the word, but like utilized the most efficient for humans. We're not like machines or like resources that we throw at things. So it's like, it's a gross language, but are people positioned and set up to do their best work? 
as maybe like a nicer way to frame that. And so what I'm seeing happening, right, is companies are, I'm going to ignore the layoff piece because that gets into a whole other complex macro piece, but companies are redirecting humans to their most critical pieces of their business. And I think looking for ways to clear overhead or distraction, right? And so like, as is, I think a pretty common trope at this point is like every year around the new year, there's a lot of energy around like, call out all of the meetings, get rid of all of the distractions, let everyone just work. And I actually do agree when you're doing large scale communications, you need to be bold. So like all meetings are bad, cut them all, delete them for three weeks and then like figure it out afterwards. That's how you like turn a giant ship. But obviously there's nuance in here and it's really hard to communicate that nuance. The media, at least in its headlines is never gonna have a nuanced headline that might exist in the article. And so this trend towards dramatically scaling back meetings, I think to me, the takeaway shouldn't be all meetings are bad. It's make sure that meetings and moments together serve you, that they're useful, that they do what you want them to do. And they're not a thing that you have become a slave to. It's the same with all process, right? Like when we go into our rounds of like all process is bad, you know, agile has become a horrible thing. We need to like get back to just the work. It's when we become a slave to the thing versus the thing being a tool that serves us is where you start to see it go bad. And so with the current meeting trend, you know, I'm like, yeah, Shopify cut all of its meetings at the beginning of the year. I cut all of my meetings personally every quarter. I just like delete my calendar and then reschedule stuff back in because that's just how I make sure that all of the stuff serves me and I'm not just falling into a trap. So like, I thought it was useful. I found it good. I have not told my teams to not add back meetings that were critical to them or important to their work or help them socialize or help them connect deeper or planning meetings that help them coordinate so that they could spend the rest of the week being focused on good work instead of having to have 30 one-on-ones to coordinate. I think what it ultimately comes down to is intentionality and awareness. Is this meeting, what do I want it to do? What does it need to accomplish? Is it doing that? If it isn't, can I fix it? Or should it go away? Or is there an alternative way to approach this? And maybe one last call out, at least thinking about my own experience in Shopify, I do think we have relied on meetings in the early days of our transition to being a remote company to work in similar ways that we did when we were an office-based company. And transition that we are still going through and figuring out is what does it mean to really be a remote-first company that's globally distributed? What are the different patterns that we should adopt for how we communicate, get on the same page, jam on ideas? I still think even in that world, synchronous time together is super valuable for certain things. But what things were we doing synchronously that maybe we would be better served by doing in a different async way? Tell us about the book, Embrace Uncertainty. Yes, I would say a field guide to Scrum that me and a few coworkers wrote seven or eight years ago, really centered on kind of trying to get to like the good parts. Like if you've never done this before, or if you've you know read lots of books and it's been a while, you need a refresher. Can you read this on a plane ride and get some like good practical tactics to help a team work better? It has a little bit of a centric focus on in-person work because it was written in the times when I was personally completely against the idea of remote work. But if you like fuzz your eyes around the parts that like anchor on that, it still actually applies pretty well digitally. I would say it still is the defaults that all of my teams run with on how to use, I would say, Scrum Lite in a way that can be very productive without too much overhead and keep the team in charge of how that all runs. There's a foreword that we added to the book a couple of years after we published it. The real thing for all things process related is, again, that intentionality and awareness of what are you trying to achieve? You can carbon copy if you have no idea what to do, but like you can't stay in that carbon copy. 
right? So I like the defaults that that book proposes because they've worked really well for me, but all of those defaults change with every single team that I lead or have been attached to because each team is different and needs slightly different things to be successful. It's a starting place, not an end state. Jesse, thanks very much for your time today. Some really interesting conversation. If people want to continue the conversation, where do they find you? I have all of my various social links and messaging platforms are on my personal website at jcmcginnis.com. But Twitter, LinkedIn, and increasingly Mastodon are the places that I reside on the internet. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shane.